What is so frightening about writing? I still don't know. Perhaps it's the horrible knowledge that no matter how well you write, the resulting product will never correlate exactly to the truth, will never arrive with quite the melodious voice you hear in the acoustic cavity of your mind. Memory is a metaphor. It's not about facts, but about what the memory symbolically represents. Memory is not about what you remember or the factual experience. Memory is about meaning and what the experience says. Writing, therefore, is not about what you remember, but why you remember it. And that's the only version of the story you can tell. You don't remember with your mind, but with your senses. And your only invitation to your audience is to allow them to enter your experience with you. Good writing embodies the experience for others. So when you write, speak, create, or communicate, tell the truth. But remember, in telling the truth, you will always tell it slant. An adaptation of Brenda Miller's Tell It Slant, Writing and Shaping Creative Nonfiction. Here we are becoming human, and today we are continuing our conversation on memory, and we are specifically going to interact with the sentiment of what I just read that what you communicate and remember will never correlate exactly to the truth. Memory is a metaphor. And this is what we opened up with last episode. I told you the story of running through the Miami airport, but I actually only told you how I remembered it, which is dependent on my limited phenomenological experience, which is all I have. It doesn't include every bit of information because memory is not about history, but meaning. What you remember is more about why you remember it than the fullness of what actually happened. Even if you had it on film, you're still not gonna get every angle and version and detail and sense. And that's the bad news from last episode. We looked at the types of memory and how they function. We went through the principles of how to encode to long-term memory, but we still have this issue of a limited perspective and how it can never fully capture the reality of a moment. We also have the issue that our memory always tells it slant. The finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. So why are our memories like this? And what do we do about it? That's what we're going to get into today. As always, any way you can help the show would be appreciated. Uh, Financial support is not expected, but dang, it makes a difference for me. You can do that at coffee, ko-fi.com slash becoming human sharing the show leaving reviews subscribing all that helps too and and i'm serious when i say this feel free to contact me at my website I, i love continuing these conversations and engaging in questions or ideas you can find that at tylerkleberger.com there's also a bunch more content there if you're interested but let's get into it let's learn let's grow and let's tell our stories with the honesty of our complicated memories I want to give you an example of this whole storytelling truth and history versus meaning thing and and how what we remember is not the truth of what happened itself. Because this has some serious implications. Of course, it, it helps us to honestly engage with our memories, but it will also help us as we tell stories. It will help us as we struggle to recall information, and it's going to help us have a proper sense of perspective with the fragility and messiness of our memories. 
you know, maybe when people say they have a bad memory, really, they just mean they have a memory. It's just how it works. And in a culture that is dead set on being right, this is a confrontation we should accept. And we've talked a lot about perspective on this show. And, and storytelling and memory is a huge component of how understanding that whole perspective issue works. You know, we are storytellers, not historians, at, at least in the sense of having a complete objective fullness of something. So when someone says, you know, I'm just stating the facts here, well, they aren't. Because not only do they not have all the information, their ability to recall the information is a bit corrupt too. Our memories are stories. You, you don't have the past anymore. You only have how you remember the past. And in communicating our memories, we're telling the story, not the absolute objective truth. You know, truth with a capital T there. The information we have is all filtered through the limited, finite, meaning-seeking brain of humans. And your memory is implicating everything you say. We aren't computers, so we should stop pretending like we are. And, and an example of something that does this well is the movie Beast of the Southern Wild. The film itself is great cinema, but the artistry of the film captures the essence of, of memory and perspective really well. The whole story is about a girl in a desolate situation. And as you're watching the movie, you get a sense that what is happening is not what is actually happening. And this is because the movie is not just narrating you know, the facts of the story. It's an absolutely explicit adventure in telling the story purely from the perspective of this little girl. And, and you get all these takes on scenes and events that make you go, wait a minute. That isn't what happened. That's how the girl is perceiving what happened. It's brilliant. E even the, the cinematography and how the scenes are shot, it, it begins to make you feel like you are the little girl and you're seeing all of this through her eyes, including how her eyes are slanting the details. It's great. But it's also how all of our memories work and it's how we should approach any kind of communication or storytelling or memory of somebody else. We see the world a particular way, and then we tell stories about how we see the world that reflects the meaning with which we imbue on how we've seen it in the first place. It's a beautiful thing. It's also a profoundly messy thing. But here's the deal. That's all we've got. You can't override this human process. Technology has worked incredibly hard to overcome this. But you can't remove the human component. It, it's, it's an adventure in the impossible. And all of this is technically a conversation on what's called epistemology, or how we know what is real or what is true. We've got all these complicated components of how we perceive and understand the actual world around us. And philosophers have debated for millennia on, on what this means for humans. Can we actually know what is true if everything is plagued by how we individually experience truth? You know, is the world actually real or is it all just in our heads? But what's important here is understanding that when we talk about memory, it is limited and it's rife with constrained complications. Memory, however, is also incredibly malleable. So the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. 
And, and the finger pointing at the moon has also continued to evolve and alter what it is pointing at and how it is pointing. And all of this is a result of how our memory gets constructed, which we looked at last time. So you do the work of moving information from sensory memory to short-term memory to long-term memory. But the memory is still not the same as the actual thing. So even if you do all that incredibly well, you're great at encoding, you still have this bad news. Now, this reality is best illustrated by the messiness of eyewitness testimonies. It used to be a staple in court proceedings, but as technology developed, people began to realize that eyewitness testimonies are almost always wrong. Uh, in, in cases where a false conviction occurred, 75% of them were because the verdict resulted from eyewitnesses. In fact, in just in recent years, over 300 wrongful convictions have been overturned by DNA evidence, and all of those convictions were from eyewitness testimonies. So, so I have so many people spent years of their lives incarcerated for acts they did not commit because human beings don't remember for precise descriptions. They remember for meaning. And courts used to give the, you know, this component of memory precedence in determining judgment. So when we're trying to offer the facts of what happened, well, their memories were corrupting the information. And just think about this, okay? You're, imagine you're sitting at your office desk when suddenly you hear a coworker shout, they're getting away. Okay, so you turn, you look out your window, you see someone running with a bag and you get a glimpse of the perpetrator and it only lasts for a fraction of a second and they get behind a corner, they're gone. Later, police bring you in for questioning and they ask, you know, what the, what would the thief look like? Do you know? What about the color of their shirt? How big were they? Did you catch their eye color? All of this would be really helpful information to have for identifying the suspect. So, first, you would have had to go through the process of encoding sensory information to short-term memory with its five to nine chunks that last 30 seconds, and then process that information to long-term memory with a variety of principles and, and encoding methods. But then, how can you be sure that your memory of the event and the person fully and accurately is done so you can select out that specific person in question. Like maybe you're shown a sketch later. Can you confirm with absolute certainty it is the correct suspect? If you were shown a lineup of you know similarly looking people, would you be able to point out the right person? Or, or as, as might be necessary, confirm that none of the suspects in the lineup is the correct criminal? And, there, and there's a ton of factors here, right? Have you been culturally shaped with certain biases? Are you influenced by the people asking you the questions? Do you have emotional correlations or links or associations that are implicating your judgment or clouding your perspective? Psychologists have done experiments to show how inaccurate this process is. You know, they'll show a clip where the subjects are given roughly a one-second glimpse of the person in question. Okay, sensory memory is able to handle that. They are then asked to describe the person or, you know, pick them out of a lineup. And almost always the subjects never accurately describe or correctly pick out the person in question. Um, sometimes the per the correct person won't even be in the lineup, but the subject will be adamant. No, 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 that's the right one. And they, they just haven't done the memory process correctly. It, it's how it, it's how it all goes. And in the end, you know, they got the clothing color wrong 
or they can't remember the person's side accurately or you know they fail to describe any other detail that would be helpful for a conviction and what is often happening is the one second glimpse it begins to morph in the person's mind and they have to begin filling in blanks with their imagination so if they didn't do the encoding process from sensory to short term to long term and they're being asked about details that they didn't encode, they have to work with the very few details they have in order to make up the rest. And sometimes they'll get so caught up in being right that they will trick themselves into accuracy that they don't have because they're pursuing the meaning of being correct or helping to catch a criminal so much so that they're willing to forego accuracy in the process. So yeah, you, you have this issue that it takes serious time and attention to encode sensory information to short-term and long-term memory. You also have the issue that there is lots of sensory information causing interference. We also didn't see every angle of the information. And, and so we are left with a moment of duress where our ability to accomplish the encoding process falters and, and we're left with gaps in the information. But then is the real problem. We feel the need to fill in those gaps. This is the problem called creating false memories. And um, it's a point of contention in contemporary psychological circles. So there's a lot of popular therapeutic techniques that were around in the 1970s through about the 1990s. And it led to this discovery that many people were claiming memories that never happened. Now, I, I blame Sigmund Freud. You know, his psychotherapy process almost forced people to make correlations that were not there. But with processes like uh, hypnosis or imagination therapy, there was this attempt to recover repressed memories. And uh, this was done under the guise, you know, that you know, we simply forget about these things. So people began concluding facts that never actually happened to them. And, and this is not to say that we don't repress memories. That is a real thing. Um, this is also not to say that anyone claiming some trauma or problem is making it up. But often, unintentionally, often unintentionally, therapists were inviting their patients to consider details that might not be true, and the result was the construction of details that the patients used to fill in gaps and own as real events. They were even able to recount these false memories with like vivid, confident details. And this is what we often do. Being so susceptible to encoding failure, we fill in the gaps as an attempt to make sense of a very ambiguous world. And unfortunately, our memory is easily influenced, even by ourselves, because memory is limited and memory is malleable. Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, a cognitive psychologist who focuses on memory, um, has written and spoken about this issue frequently. Um, she has a TED Talk, I know, immediate credibility, um, but her TED Talk is titled, How Reliable Is Your Memory? And she talks about this problem. And, and one conclusion she draws is this, quote, Research is beginning to give us an understanding of how false memories of complete emotional and self-participatory experiences are created in adults. First, there are social demands on individuals to remember. For instance, researchers exert some pressure on participants in a study to come up with memories. Second, memory construction by imagining events can be explicitly encouraged when people are having trouble remembering. And finally, 
individuals can be encouraged not to think about whether their constructions are real or not. Creation of false memories is most likely to occur when these external factors are present, whether in an experimental setting, in a therapeutic setting, or during everyday activities. End quote. Memory is malleable, so we need to be diligent in how we are using and talking about such malleable parts of our identities. Now, notice that at no point in this discussion on memory have I said that memory is permanent. Yes, long-term memory is infinite in both capacity and duration, but that's the ideal. In addition to limits on how much information you can process at once, in the risk of losing long-term memory, the way you remember the thing changes as your circumstances change and develop. So essentially, your memory grows with you. This is what you see with the eyewitness issue. How we remember what happened is continually affected by new pieces of information that we gain over time. And, and this is why juries are not allowed to interact with the public during court proceedings. But this is also why we tend to romanticize the past. Because our malleable memory has evolved how we remember that thing. So not only is it probably not as historically accurate as we might claim, but we, we add or we eliminate or edit or embellish details because they contribute to the meaning. They're not contributing to the history of the facts. They're contributing to how the thing's understood. And, and sometimes this can be really good. You know, we can get a better picture of something the, the, the more it grows. Um, or we can reflect on it with, with, with more fullness. But it's still not about accuracy. And even with things that you learn. As you encode more and more stuff into your long-term memory, the new and old memories begin to interact and adjust to one another and therefore affect one another, which can make the information more powerful, but it can also make it increasingly unreliable. There's also something worth bringing up here about technology and how it plays a role in all of this. You know, you've probably heard that oral cultures didn't have to write down their information because their brains were wired in a way that they were able to remember and retell stories by word of mouth with great accuracy. And, and you see this all over the place. Uh, there's, there's one anecdote about how it was part of the ancient Jewish tradition to have the entire Hebrew scriptures memorized during childhood. And, and we don't have to do this anymore because we have technology. As it goes... Technology has also corroded our ability to interact with memory. Now, I, I have to, some people still do this. Like I've heard folks in, recite entire dialogue from like popular comedy movies, or I've seen people just jump into songs that they know all the words to. My children can repeat whole comedy sketches, yet they can't remember the types of government for their homework. Come on. But we don't function like this all the time because we don't have to. As literacy and writing technology advanced, we were able to place information that in previous living conditions was only accessible orally. We're able to now put them down on paper or photographs. And this is a great feat of progress. And I imagine we are able to be in contact with exponentially larger amounts of information because of this. I mean, you have, you have access to almost any piece of information that exists. That's unprecedented in history. But I also imagine that our memory muscles are weaker because of it. 
Technology corrodes memory because it eliminates the need for encoding. You know, we have notes, so we don't have to memorize things. We have GPS and contacts lists, so we don't have to memorize directions or addresses or phone numbers. And I'm, I'm not ready to pronounce a moral judgment here, but we can be honest that this has caused a bit more difficulty to encode information, and it's contributed to the malleability of our memory. But let's get into what we should do with this, what, what this means for us, because the messiness of our memories can severely impact our identities, and it can impact our, our relationships, and just generally how we interact with information and perspective and, and life. So here's a question. Can communication be unbiased? Can you, can you have unbiased communication? What about a newspaper? You know, the media. Unbiased proclamations of truth, right? What if you see a headline that reads, White House announces that war is over? Is that unbiased? Because it's just a basic fact, right? It's an unimpeded offering of pure information. Well, think about even something as basic as that, the word choice. Um, maybe there's an accompanying photograph. That's going to implicate some of the message. But even the font size, the location of the message, uh, the, the corresponding context to what is occurring elsewhere on the newspaper and where it's placed, those are all decisions made that reflect the bias of the communicator. And even everything I say on this podcast, even in me trying to be as unbiased and pure as possible, a person's perspective is entangled with whatever information they share and how they share it. Our information is a jumbled dance of story and memory. There's always the bias there. And the first complication of all of this, when we're talking about memory, is that your perspective is just that. It's a perspective. When you recall information and pass it on, the communication reflects what you know, the way that information has been shaped and influenced, and the way that information has evolved over time in reflection of your strange memory. You, my friend, are a phenomenological nightmare, and your perspective only contains a fraction of complete reality. What in, whatever information you have and whatever information you generate for a narrative, no matter how pure the intention, it's going to be partial and it's going to reflect the meaning you are pursuing, including whatever gaps you may have filled in during the process. You aren't able to recite every bit of detail surrounding the events or moments because you did not encode them all. And the parts you did encode reflect the complication of how your memory works in the first place. So whatever you communicate is going to reflect your bias. And this is completely normal and completely acceptable as long as we are honest about it. Your perspective and your memory are incomplete. The finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. But that brings up a second issue when communicating memory and story. Last episode, I brought up a good way to understand phenomenology, and it's by considering your perspective on your house. So if I were to ask you to describe, say, your childhood home, how would you do it? You may tell me about the color of the house or the location, 
Maybe there's a sentimental feeling uh, of something that's dear to you from the house or memory. Maybe there's something that brings up problems or there's a specific event or spot that captivates your consciousness. But I'm guessing you're going to leave some stuff out. And, And not necessarily on purpose. You might not tell me how many trees there were. You might not tell me the specific dimension size of all of the windows. There might be spaces that just don't have, you know, associations in in your memory or are important. As an adult, I often find myself thinking back to my childhood and going, you know, I never even considered how my parents decided what to eat for dinner. Or I never once cared about that room in the house or how the infrastructure operated because it wasn't important. And it didn't consume my attention and therefore didn't get encoded with my limited perspective and memory. See, your memory is not only limited and malleable, it's also selective. When we are moving information from sensory to short-term to long-term memory, the details become fewer and fewer. We don't remember everything. And then when we communicate, we pare down the information even further based on what we think is most appropriate. You know, you you have the, the core tools that you keep in the toolbox, and then when you share those tools, you still don't even share all of them. It's why you probably wouldn't tell me about the window sizes of your house. Or maybe you would, but you're an outlier there, okay? And we shouldn't remember and communicate everything. You'd be really boring to be around, and, and our memories would be laborious and unnecessary. But if this is true about your child at home, it's, it's also probably true about the history book you read or the account of why your friends got divorced, and every story in between. In the age of the scientific method, we may want all the details, but we will not get them. Because as storytellers using meaning-based memory, we are selective. And then, you have the issue of interpretation. Not only will we fail to get all the details... And not only will all the details be biased according to what you encoded, so that we're not going to even get the exact details here, the details that we do get are going to be drenched in your perception. And perception is your reality. It's the, the fishermen exaggerating the size of their catch. Often, our memories play the game of telephone with ourselves. The details get influenced by new details and new perceptions and the context of where we are communicating and who are we are communicating to. What's in your head in the intention of what you want to say probably doesn't match reality. It, I tend to be a hype man when it comes to describing something I've enjoyed, right? Like I'll tell people about a song or a movie or a moment and suddenly... Like an adventure on the rapids of a river, the story starts careening in a direction where whatever that thing is, is the best thing ever, and you just have to go and watch this, do this, whatever. What's happening there is I'm using my memory and experience and then placating it to the person so that they might be as excited as I am about it. And this is just one example of how as memory ages and it gets selective and it gets interpreted, it can take on new forms. Like, think back to the story of the airport. Did we really run through the entire airport? Was the terminal exactly on the furthest side from where we were? Did the flight attendant literally type like the person on Meet the Parents? Probably not. It's like a painting that takes on age. 
our memories are not static. They continue to construct and morph. They get exaggerated and distorted and inflated as new influences and new information and new contexts begin to interact with the details. Change is a natural part of human existence, and that's physically you change, geologically things change, mentally things change, but even our memories are subject to change. Your ability to recall information, it, it degrades and evolves over time as you continuously reinterpret the information. This is what's happening with, with, with storage decay and with interference. Because when you recall a memory, you aren't recounting the event itself. You're enfleshing your interpretation of the event through the medium of story. You're, you're telling it slant. Which is okay. Because stories and memories are not scientific reports, nor can they be. The stories we tell and the stories we hear are not meant to capture the holistic details in the form of pure unbiased facts. They are meant to capture meaning. And the way our brains work, we need all of the different angles to help understand what is happening. We use logos and ethos and pathos, and we are all stuck with this wide range of experiences that are constricted to our singular perspective, and that's all we have. See, the mind is at play when it comes to memory. The intention is not to take us to the moon, but to point to it, to show it from our eyes. Communication involves all this messiness, but the good thing is that your pointing at the moon offers an angle that only you can give. Everyone, with their vast diversity and sloppiness, is adding the larger experience and understanding of the world, and we need that. But when we try to pretend that we actually have reality itself, you know, we are offering a false replica of reality. We only have our interpretation of reality, and that is where the value of stories and memories lie. You won't get the historical truth of what happened that day at the airport, and you don't need it. You will have an experience and a story about the human condition, and that is information that is genuinely helpful for all of us. And I'll say it again, it's the only thing we have. So we might as well call it what it is, and we might as well use it as beneficially as possible. If your memory is not a recording device, then what, what are you going to do with the limited, selective, and interpreted stories of our malleable memories? It's fragile and plastic. It's susceptible to influence. It's constantly evolving and growing and changing and under construction. But there's still worth and value there. Because while the facts may not be true in a historical sense. No matter how confident and detailed you make them, there is no doubt that the story is true. The truth of a story is not found in the details. The truth of a story is found in what you've done with the details. The experience is still valuable because memory is about meaning. The past does not exist anymore, only how you remember the past. We need to let memory and stories be just that. Memories and stories. We need to stop pretending that we have something to offer that we don't have. And we need to start offering the only value that memory and stories can give, the collective consciousness of the human experience. We are all telling it slant. You don't have all the information, but every slanted story 
It's another finger pointing at the moon. And the more fingers we have honestly pointing at the moon with full disclosure on their limitations, the more we are going to be able to understand the moon and its meaning. There's something called epistemic privilege, that someone's experience of something, while it might not be the full, all-encompassing truth, it's still valuable because it provides an angle on reality that helps offer a more complete picture than what we'd otherwise have. It doesn't mean that they get the last say, but it is an honest approach that someone's experience is all you have when trying to arrive at truth. The objective all-encompassing version doesn't exist. And it's not possible anyways. Even if you went to the moon, you would never be able to point to it in a way that fully captures and embodies the experience for us. And even if you made it so that all of us could go to the moon, well, we're all going to have different experiences of that same thing and remember it differently. And you're never going to be able to give us exactly what you experienced with all 360 degrees. It's just not possible. We need to let stories be stories. We need to let memories be memories. And then we need to use them to continue the story of the world in a more meaningful way that we wouldn't have without what you've shared. That's all I got for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.